This entire podcast was just a steady flow of ideas about how to build products and companies. So let's go ahead and just jump right into it. So uh, Jason starts off saying, I don't worry, and this is actually a counterintuitive idea, and you'll see when I get to the last sentence. He says, I don't worry about being persuasive. I've never really tried to change anyone's mind. Instead, I try to communicate clearly. I tell the truth as I see it and let the chips fall where they may. If you try too hard to change people's minds, you will end up frustrated. The best advice I have is if you want to be persuasive, not to try to be persuasive. So what he's saying there, at least the way I interpret it was, as long as you're calling it as you see it, speaking what you think is the right way based on your own experiences, that and then you put that message out there, it's going to resonate with other people that are more, uh, more likely to agree with you. Um, as opposed to trying to sit there and spend time uh, individually changing people's minds. People, a lot of times, they don't want to change their mind. They kind of hold on to their ideas. That's actually a a negative personality trait, I would say. Um, So he says, I don't aim to be controversial. I just call it as I see it. And sometimes that is controversial. I think it is important to have a point of view. I think when you have a point of view, you automatically become controversial to people who don't share that point of view. So again, he's saying on this whole line of just... Put your ideas out there, and you'll you'll find like minds. I, I uh, when I heard him say that, I thought of this tweet I read a long time ago. It said the best description of Twitter, like how they tweet, is that they're um, it's like a tuning fork for uh, like-minded humans. So you put out these ideas, and all of a sudden, you 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 have uh, this network of people that think similarly to to you. Um, so he says he's still c- talking about um, it's important that you share your point of view and. Um, and that if you're sharing your point of view, it could be controversial to people that, that don't agree with that. And he says, if you don't have a point of view at all, then you can't move people or get them engaged. For me, it is important to say something that has a clear point of view that I believe. So it comes back. He uses the word belief over and over again in this podcast. And I think it, it has to do with when you're writing, uh, when you're communicating with other people, but also when you, especially when you're building products. So he says, charging your customers money instead of raising money from investors is a radical message in the software industry. But it's not a radical message anywhere else in the world. Pretty much every single business in the world just has to figure it out. Getting money from customers is extremely mainstream. I love that idea of saying, yeah, in the industry that I'm maybe operating in, this may seem a little weird, but if you learn from a broader set of experiences, you just step back and analyze how all of the majority of commerce has been done throughout human history, like this is extremely mainstream. So he says, raising a bunch of money and only considering a billion dollar business a success seems extremely radical. The odds are extremely against you. You have a much better shot at staying with your means, growing slowly, and being profitable. So there's a lot more. What he's saying there is obviously, you know, there's going to be some people that are able to found uh, a successful billion-dollar business, but that number is so much smaller than than the tons. I think I read the other day, just in the United States alone, there's like 300,000 or 400,000 people that uh that are running businesses that make three million dollars or more a year in profit so uh, and then you say how many people are running billion dollar businesses maybe you know 10 20 much smaller um and then think about all the businesses that make you know a million or two million or a hundred thousand or whatever the number is uh, two hundred thousand the, the, the numbers are not actually that important but there's a ton of profitable businesses out there i think uh in general there's like four for the last time I saw the number is like 23 million um, entrepreneurs in the United States alone. Um, okay, so he says uh, you have a much better shot at staying within your means, growing slowly and being profitable. 
Uh, he says there are a new crop of investors if you are going to raise investors investment that are not trying to help you raise millions. Instead, you can raise a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand to get going, and then maybe you can buy them out. I think that's a good pattern. It's actually interesting to me. You know, um, the founder of Y Combinator, uh, Paul Graham, and I'm looking it up as I talk to you right now. He he had this thread on Twitter that was fascinating, um, where it says. Uh, okay, so he says, if I was a 22-year-old starting a startup, so he's giving advice to his younger self, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. He said, I would certainly apply to YC, which is not that surprising since it was designed to be what I wish I had uh, when, I, when I did start one, meaning his previous startup. But assuming I get in, I would not get sucked into raising a huge amount of money. I would raise maybe 500K, keep the company small for the first year, work closely with users to make something amazing, and otherwise, uh, otherwise stay off the radar. In other words, I'd be the opposite of a scenester. Uh, ideally, I'd get to profitability on that initial 500K. Later, I could raise more if I felt like it or not, but it would be on my terms. At every point in the company's growth, I'd keep the company as small as I could. I'd always want to be surprised. I'd always want people to be surprised at how few employees we had. Fewer employees equal lower costs and less need to turn into a manager. And the thread continues. He even says he'd uh, try to avoid not uh, like growing the company so much that he could that he'd have to stop writing um, code. So that that's more along the lines of um, my own personal philosophy. Like I never worked in a large company. I don't like large groups of people in general. And um, I actually think there's a there's a uh, the, I've talked about this many times, and if you listen to Founders Podcasts and all the other extra podcasts I've done, that uh, it's pretty obvious to me, even though you see some people kind of like uh, optimize for, for revenue, uh, grow, only like the amount of revenue, and then, uh, and then next, the amount of uh, like employees they have. But it's pretty obvious to me that the optimal size of a company is shrinking. Um, there's a book that I'd read. I haven't read it in like, it's probably been four months. But it's called Unscaled, and if I remember correctly, I'd read the you could you all you have to do is read the first three chapters and the last three chapters, and it kind of talks about this how the the economies of scale in the industrial age, you know, that made a lot of sense. Uh, centralized location, you had you were in many cases you were manufacturing things. Obviously, you want to get as big as possible. But now in the information age, the internet age, the internet revolution we're going through, the opposite is actually true. So you're starting to see. Um, you know, t tiny businesses as far as headcount, 5, 10, 20 people doing amazing things. Uh, in this case, Basecamp, Jason's company that we're talking about here, they have 54 employees and they make tens, plural, tens of millions in profit every year. So that's, you know, a very optimal situation. I've seen some that make, you know, $10 million with three people, whatever the case is. There's another uh, metric I track because I'm a weirdo, and it's how many... Um, non-employee so i forgot the exact term so basically one person businesses right they're called like non-employer organizations or something i forgot that the, the way irs um classifies them but the irs data is public and you can see how many of these firms there are and i want to say there's like forty thousand of them in the united states that have one so basically the owner is the only person working there um, maybe they have contractors, but they don't have any full-time employees and they're bringing in over that you obviously don't know the profit because they're private companies, but they're bringing in over a million dollars in revenue. So one person bringing in over $1 million in revenue and you know, it's 40,000 people doing that just in, in, in the country I live in. All right. Uh, so let me go back to the notes. Okay. So the, there's a couple of new crop of investors and you see this, they're, they're basically making money, not on 
on IPOs or exits, but uh, getting companies to profitability and then, you know, they own 10% of a company that makes $10 million a year, they're doing really well on their investment. Uh, independence is probably the most valuable thing we have. With profitability comes flexibility. Um, uh, with more people, meaning more employees, you tend to become slower. All, uh, all kinds of other problems creep up, which I think is what uh, Paul Graham was talking about in that, in that tweet storm where, you know, just keep it as small as possible. It's just better that way. He always, he's talked about in the past that he's never worked at a big company. He just never would. Um, if we had a board, meaning a board of directors, we'd have to justify ourselves. I have no interest in justifying myself. I just want to do the best work I can with the best people we can find. We want to enjoy ourselves and make our own decisions. To me, that is more valuable than anything. And that's that one paragraph. I mean, I don't think you're going to find many people that wouldn't agree with that. Like, you have a profitable business. You get to build a product that you love with people, the best people you can, and you get to enjoy it and make your own decisions. Like, that's that's heaven. Um, as organizations grow, they become more rigid. They form organizational scar tissue. They tighten up. We have tried to iterate rather than scar. Scarring, so he gives an example, would be this is the way we do it, meaning it's not going to change. It's just set in stone uh, versus changing the way you work and how you approach things over the years. So that's why he says iterate, don't scar. Think about how changes impact your company. Just because it's the latest new thing doesn't mean it's any better for us. Look at open floor plans. They've made office life worse for a lot of people. It isn't, and this is the most important part of this paragraph. It's important to revisit these decisions you've made. Don't just make it let years pass and not think, Oh, wait, is that, is that still the decision I made? Is that still serving me as, as good? Um, today is it is when I when I made that decision. Is there any new information that I that I found that actually could get me to change my mind on this? If you could try, uh, he was asked the question. If you could try something unconventional and didn't have to worry it was going to work, that it was definitely going to be an experiment that was going to work out. Um, that was going to work out. What would you change about how you run the company? And he says this is really surprising to me. I'd take a year off. I'd be curious to see what good things would happen, what patterns would emerge, what changes would have to be made, or what changes would have been made. I've contemplated that before, but never had the courage to do it. Um, he says, every time we built a brand new version of Basecamp, we did it after we explored something else, meaning a different product. A lot of the ideas from Basecamp 3, which is their latest version of the product, came from us making another product and then returning back to Basecamp to make a new version of Basecamp. We think it's a good idea to explore something else first so you can get some new ideas. If you're a person who likes to make things, you will always, and this is, this really resonated with me. If you're a person who likes to make things, you will always want to make new things. You will always see problems in the world. You want to put your version of it out there, meaning new product. You simply can't do everything you want. That never ends. So just kind of have to deal with it. It's understanding that you're, you're, it's something internally causes you to, to, to uh, like propels you forward for lack of a better word. To, to make new things and you probably have a lot of different ideas and that's why it's so important um, to be selective and it kind of leads into his next point he says it's a good idea to be selective about what you choose to put your energy into you have very limited energy attention and focus the things you choose to spend that time on should really earn it they should be worthy of it not everything is um, and then he he has a he has a statement that I certainly agree with he says I'm a big believer in little niche products things that are often overlooked um, something uh, he's built a lot of products in his life, but Basecamp's by far uh, like the outlier there, the, the most successful financial product, the, the most successful product financially, I should say. And he says, I'm perfectly co comfortable calling ourselves a one hit wonder. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we hit it big once and we are doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on this. You were lucky to have any hits in your life. And that's kind of, he always has a statement that he's a proud non-serial entrepreneur. He thinks it's a bad idea. Like if you sold your best idea, then you're just spending your time working on your second best idea. Why would you do that? 
Um, sometimes he talked, he, he was talking about sometimes the amount of time you invest and the amount of money you make are not uh, correlated. So he says, we built a job board called We Work Remotely in Three Days. It was making $40,000 a month. Uh, he wound up selling that. But he's like, it's probably the most successful thing we did given the sh- such a short amount of time that we worked on it and how much money it made. Um, but so if you obviously per hour invested, um, not not gross or not overall. I think everyone, uh, I agree with this too. This is kind of, this is exactly why I'm doing an email newsletter and I love communicating with people through email. I think people are making a great mistake thinking email is dead. It is alive and well and only getting stronger and stronger. It is not going anywhere, nor should it. It's fantastic. Email is amazing. It has a lot of advantages over real-time communication. Uh, the best way to validate your product is to put a price on it, release it to the market and see if people are willing to pay for it. This is uh, explicit advice for building a product. Do what you think is the best thing, something that you believe in, something you can stand behind, something that you are doing because you understand why you are doing it. And then he also talks about like, you know, there's very few things from the outside that are actually, that the very few things appear internally like they do from the outside. So don't get too caught up in thinking that you're, you're, you're not capable of doing that and that, you know, other people are perfect and you're not. This, this is really not true. And so it says, most companies are held together with duct tape. Very few things are what they seem with regards to how smooth and elegant things are. That is a freeing thought. Who knows anyway? No one really knows. Everyone is making it up as they go, and you should too. Uh, this is a great two, sen- these great two sentences. The right way is relative. It is not absolute. Uh, there is no one right way to make a product. Uh, there is no right or wrong. The only thing that tells you if it's right or wrong is the market itself. 